Jeremiah 29 this morning. While you're finding Jeremiah 29, I uh, would just like to sincerely say thank you for your hospitality, Open Door Church, for letting Christ Fellowship invade you this morning. If any of us are seated in your seats, we apologize. (laughs) Treat us kindly. And uh, once again, we, many of us, probably all of us uh, at Christ Fellowship would just like to encourage you that we, um, we pray for you regularly. And, um, and, and trust that uh, not only will this combined service be a blessing, but, but trust that even looking now into, into Scripture will just uh, ground both of our congregations in the assurance of, of God's kindness to us in Christ. So I'm going to read Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 14, and then I'll pray, and then we'll work through it together. Jeremiah 29, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Judah. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your, your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come to me and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. Join me in prayer this morning. Our Father, we give you thanks for your word, Lord, that we have your word preserved for us inerrant for us, authoritative for us, is a mercy to us, your people. Thank you that we are not in the dark concerning truth. Thank you that we're not in the dark concerning who you are, what you've done, and what you've planned for us. So, Lord, as we gather together around your word this morning, our prayer is that by the power of the Spirit, Our confidence in your word would be greater this morning. Our assurance that your goodness toward us is a promise, that it's eternal, and that it's 
meaningful for us even now. I pray that we, we might leave here with more assurance of that and grounded in the truth of your word. So, Lord, we offer ourselves to you, and this time to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've got to ask you a question. I think that's a pretty um, legit question to ask any of us. It's a general question, but what are you worried about right now? Maybe not necessarily right now, as in this moment, because hopefully you find the weekly gathering of the church just a temporary refuge for you in your sufferings through the interactions with your brothers and your sisters, and hopefully you want to be a refuge and a source of support for others in their sufferings. And I'm not just talking about a temporary ignoring or setting aside of your troubles or your worries or your suffering. So hopefully your mission toward others when you get together with them is deeper than just trying to distract them from reality. And hopefully others' ministry toward you is deeper than that as well. So I hope that you look forward to these gatherings to find temporary refuge in your brothers and your sisters through their ministry toward you. And I hope as well that you come to these gatherings fully expecting to be ministered to through the word as it's preached to you so that your perspective of life is continually shaped and reoriented by God through his word as it's preached in the context of the gathered church because that is what God does in these gatherings. So when I ask you what you're worried about right now, I don't necessarily mean right now as in this moment because hopefully this gathering is a temporary relief to you that actually reaches out past these gatherings and into your life during the quiet times, when you're left alone to process life and deal with your anxieties and sufferings and and trials. So when I ask you what you're worried about right now, I'm talking about in this particular season of life for you, the season of life for you, what's consuming you, what's distracting you during the day, what's keeping you up at night, what's stealing your joy. your health? Is it your job? Is it your marriage? Is it your kids? Is it your church? Is it worries or thoughts about the future? And, And more importantly, because I hope that you understand that we are not just here to unload our worries on each other and find that to be therapeutic in and of itself as an end. Where are you grounding yourself so that you don't sink in the quicksand of your worries and fears and anxieties. Support from brothers and sisters in Jesus is wonderful and it is necessary. Preaching from the word is mandatory and hopefully it's nourishing. But I'm asking you where you go when it's just you. And obviously the place I'm always going to drive you at least is to God and to his word. So when I ask you where you go when it's just you and life and worries and doubts and fears, I mean, where do you go in your thoughts about God in those moments? And not just that, but where in scripture do you 
base your thoughts about God in those moments? Do you believe that God is sovereign? And do you believe that God is good? And is that belief more than just an anxious, baseless hope for you? The reality that life is hard and can be confusing and takes unexpected turns and gets tense and drives us continually to the brink. And that this is the regular, continual state of the portion of you that I interact most with, even from both churches, leads us this morning to a chapter of the Bible that is a refuge for God's people because it grounds us in God's sovereign goodness toward us. So I've read verses 1 through 14. And in my reading of it, you've probably picked up on a a couple of very familiar verses in this text. But the one that I'm going after this morning, you may have picked up on it as I read through it, just emphasizing it a little bit differently, is verse 11. So let me reread it in a moment, and then we'll try to set it in its place and then benefit from what it's saying to drive us to cast all of our cares upon God. As Peter says, because God not only cares for us, but God is actually fully able and competent and willing, and he actually delights to care for us. So here is verse 11 once again. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. There's any verse that belongs on coffee mug. It's Jeremiah 29, verse 11. This verse always strikes me as the Old Testament equivalent to another very treasured verse in the Bible from the New Testament, Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. So when I read Jeremiah 29, verse 11, I immediately think of Romans 8, 28. Let me read it to you. And we know that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Both verses remind us that God is sovereign, and that God is good. And that he is faithful to himself and to his own. And that God is unstoppable in his purposes, and that he has the good of his people in mind in everything that he does. But we do need to set some appropriate, kind of big picture boundaries as we approach this text. And in order to do do so, let's join the nation of Judah in captivity, and let's remind ourselves that the captivity was what it was first and foremost because God is faithful to himself. If that language is new to you, I mean, what I mean by it is that before time, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit covenanted together to redeem lost sinners. And it wasn't just to, okay, be watching out for an opportune time plan. It was an intentional, planned out, mapped out, sealed with an oath, revealed in time and over time kind of plan. I could just create the imagery. His plan is the forest. So that when the tree of the southern kingdom of Judah follows her older sister into sin and idolatry, God is either going to let them destroy themselves or he's going to intervene to follow through with his plan to crush the head of the serpent through the seed of Eve Eve and the family of Abraham, through the tribe of Judah and in the line of these kings of David that are reigning over Judah. 
Egypt. So the Babylonian captivity is first and foremost an expression of God's good intentions toward his people in preserving for them a future and a hope because Jesus had not yet come and lived and atoned for sin and risen from the dead and ascended back up to heaven. So if God lets sinful Judah destroy herself, there is no incarnation which means there is no sinless life, which means there is no atoning death, which means there is no resurrection from the dead, which means salvation is lost and God's plan is aborted. So captivity with the promise of return and restoration is in every way mercy, first and foremost. Secondly, the captivity was a chastening for Judah's sin that was ultimately designed to open her eyes once again to him. So those are kind of step way back boundaries that have to be in place or you're going to get lost focusing on this particular tree in the forest of God's good and sovereign plan of redemption. And I don't want us to do that. But we do need to set some context Because jumping 29 chapters into a book like Jeremiah could be a dangerous, tricky thing to do. You may remember from chapter 1 in Jeremiah that God knew Jeremiah and set him apart as a prophet before he formed him in his mother's womb. And God made his calling known to him when Jeremiah was just a teenager. At a time in Judah's history when a comparatively young king was on the throne. So just to provide some context, we learn from chapter 1 that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the 13th year of Josiah's reign. So Josiah was about 21 years old at the time that God started revealing himself and his word to Jeremiah. All the way to the 11th year of Zedekiah's reign. If you remember correctly, just trying to help. Formulate this as you're processing First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, just placing this in there. You, you may remember correctly that Zedekiah was the last king of Judah, and the eleventh year was his last year as king. So he was on the throne when Jerusalem was taken by the Babylonians. And Jeremiah 29 takes place while Zedekiah is on the throne, which means late in the hour of Jeremiah's prophecy and late in the hour before the final decisive blow comes from Babylon upon Jerusalem. With that context, let's look at Jeremiah 29 itself. The majority of the chapter here is actually a letter that Jeremiah writes to those who've already been taken captive to Babylon. The letter portion is verse 4 through verse 28. It's probably also helpful to know that Jeremiah has now been preaching to these people for over 30 years. And his message toward them was God is sending Nebuchadnezzar and he's sending the Babylonians to invade your cities and carry you away captive, partly as a judgment for your sins against him, partly as an expression of mercy toward you. So he has this imagery of the captivity as God's holding out his hand toward them and calling them to faithfully obey his word concerning how they were supposed to live during their time in exile. And God commands them, do not resist your captors, which are the Babylonians. Do not resist them because if you do, he says, I'll grant them power to use the sword to hunt you down. 
and I'll send famine and pestilence into the land. And your life will be worse if you try to escape than it will be if you surrender, which is what God was calling them to do. Surrender to the Babylonians, because this is for me. In the end, some obey and some surrender. And these are now the captives in Babylon to whom Jeremiah writes, verse 4 through verse 28. God's mercy toward them in their captivity can be seen in small things like they remain together in Babylon. They even continue to have their own leaders in exile. They're even allowed to interact with and receive gifts from the messengers who are sent by the king in their own land. I'm not minimizing the fact that they're captives, all right? But I'm reminding us that God ordained this situation for their good and he ruled over it every step of the way in mercy. And whether or not they believed that would be revealed in their obedience or their disobedience, much like it is with every one of us today. As we get into the letter itself that Jeremiah writes to captives, we learn that in addition to the mercies that we've already seen, the people of Judah have freedom to build houses, plant gardens, grow and eat their own fruit, get married, have kids. It almost sounds to me like the blessings that they refused while they were in Judah are offered to them again here, only in a different country. So I'll read verses 4 through 7 for you again, which tell you most of what I've just said, but two important commands that I on purpose left out. So verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, dwell in them, plant gardens, eat their fruit, take wives, bear sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not diminish and seek the peace of the city where I've sent you and pray to the Lord for it because in its peace, peace shall be to you. That last command is crucial in keeping the first ten commands in those verses in proper perspective. So without the command to seek and to pray for the peace of Babylon, the people of Judah could have approached their obedience to these commands with conceit or condescension or even revenge toward their captors as opposed to the humility and the submission and the gratitude that is required in God's command to seek the peace and the welfare of Babylon in their building and planting and multiplying. It means Judah's prosperity was not designed for this season to come at Babylon's expense, but in coordination with Babylon's prosperity and peace. So God commands the people to contribute to and to pray for the peace of the people holding them captive. Rather than hoping and praying for their overthrow so that they could be released and go home. So as God has said over and over to them, if going home happens before 70 years are up, life will be worse for you there than it is here. So his message to them is, settle down, keep living. Just an awesome motto for life at any stage of any of our lives. Just settle down and keep living because you're going to be here for a while. You obey me, I'll bless you, 
and I will bless those I'm using to chasten you, which will ultimately result in even greater blessings for you. But just like in Judah, there were false prophets in Babylon among the exiles. And these false prophets were preaching a different message to them. It was one of resistance and return to the land shortly rather than after 70 years. So God warns them. Verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets or your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they prophesy to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise to you and will bring you back to this place. So the false prophets were saying, God is going to turn this around soon. God says, soon maybe from my perspective, but not so soon from your perspective, and most likely for most of you, not even in your lifetime, 70 years, as a matter of fact. Then I will bring you back and do you good, but for the next 70 years, my goodness and my faithfulness toward you is in the context of Babylon and submission and servitude. If you have a hard time seeing how submission and servitude could be God's goodness toward his people, brothers and sisters, we need look no further than Christ. Who to quote Philippians 2, being in the the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So how is that goodness and blessing toward him or toward others? Well, it's verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ rules as resurrected, ascended, exalted king over the world and over a people, not only because he created all things, but because he came and he reconciled all things to himself by his death on the cross. And you confess Christ as risen Lord and exalted king and savior of your soul today because for a brief time, Christ himself subjected himself to humility and to servitude. Ultimately, we need look no further than Jesus to know that God's goodness and God's blessing is sometimes in and through pain and submission and humility. We can also look right into our text this morning to see it. Because it's here that the verse that everybody loves is found. It's in the context of God being faithful to a sinful undeserving, exiled people to whom he's pled for decades through his prophets to return to him. But who have refused again and again and again. And who God is therefore in the process of severely chastening. So Jeremiah 29 and verse 11 is not in the context of ease and security. What is potentially the favorite verse of many Christians is in the context of hardship and suffering, exile. 
So let's look at the verse itself. When 70 years have been completed for you, as, as opposed to the two years that you've been hearing from the false prophets, I will visit you and I will fulfill my purpose toward you and bring you back to this place for... And it introduces the reason behind why he said what he just said. So why the captivity? Why 70 years? Why Babylon? Why afterwards a return to the land? He says, for, which means because. Why am I doing this? Because I know the plans I have for you. There's the Lord. Plans of welfare, and not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. God is doing what he's doing to give his people a future and a hope. Something they would not have had had God allowed them to continue in sin in Judah. They would have had no future. If God did not step in, they would have destroyed themselves and cut themselves and the rest of the world off from God's good promises. So stepping in, even though in the moment it was meant for what could rightly be called evil or judgment, it was ultimately mercy because it preserved their future. Which ultimately means it preserved their hope that God would fulfill all of his promises regarding the coming Christ. Seed from Genesis 3.15. The family member, the son through the Abrahamic covenant. The child through the tribe of Judah. The king in the line of kings. So again, if God leaves them in their sin to self-destruct, all of that is gone. No incarnation, no atonement, no resurrection, no salvation for any of us. And today, we would still be dead in our sins, frantically buying all the time that we can, like everybody else who has no hope, before we, in the end, perish forever. So God sending his people into exile for 70 years was his faithfulness to himself, first and foremost, his faithfulness to his eternal covenant, and his faithfulness to his people, people of his covenant, to turn them back to himself and to bless them and to give them hope and a future. So take that and start to process your own frustration with your own circumstances. And all the time spent trying to get out of them or change them. All the time spent worrying and stressing and just throw God's plan for your welfare as his child and his pledge to preserve you from destruction in the backdrop or as the foundation. Let it produce in you a spirit-given rest and contentment and a joy rather than a dread of whatever is now or a dissatisfaction in what is now or a fear of what's to come. Life is what it is right now for every one of us because God is good and God is faithful and God is working everything together right now for the good of his people and for our future hope. And it's not at all because we deserve it, because we're so faithful so that it's somehow earned or even reasonable from God. Not that at all. But it is because God Christ was faithful to his Father on our behalf, in our place, and earned it for us. 
So our posture toward God must be one of humility and submission and joy because we know we haven't earned anything we get in life. But every circumstance is ordained as a generous gift from our good Father for our good through Christ. I would suggest that it's far better and it's much more biblical, it's much more much more satisfying alternative than a life of plotting and scheming to avoid life. Trial and duck out from under suffering and find ease. It's the, if only I could. I think every time we think, if only I could, I, th- I think that Jeremiah would say, no, that's what they thought. They thought if we could only get back to our land, life would be good again. We could start over, despite the fact that God said what you want most, which is the way out of this, is not what is best. What is best for you is to see God and to turn to him in repentance and faith where you are right now in Babylon. Not start over with a clean slate in Judah. It's trust Now, whether your obedience has resulted in fruitful times, light times, or dark and trying times. Trust now that God is faithful to his eternal plan to force all things together for your good. Your welfare, not your destruction. Because you've been reconciled to him in Christ What does it mean for God to have plans of welfare and not of evil and a future and a hope for us again? Ultimately, it meant and it means to reveal Christ to you and in you. That is his ultimate plan for your welfare and your goodness. And it's through Christ that every other manifestation of God's welfare and goodness comes to you. But look how he says it here. Again, keep verse 11 attached to verse 12. For I know the plans that I have for you, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come to me and pray to me and I will hear you. Which doesn't even sound like a big deal to us because we're wrongly taught that God always hears us. When he's told these people over and over again that he doesn't. As a matter of fact, he won't. He's not obligated to. He's even told Jeremiah, his prophet, not to bother even praying for Judah because God won't even hear Jeremiah's prayers on their behalf. But now God says, I've sent you to Babylon because that is where I will meet with you again if you'll once again listen to my voice there. So in Judah, where you want to be, I will not hear you. In Babylon, where I've sent you, I will hear your prayers. Which means he's using Babylon to bring them back to a posture of humility and repentance and prayer toward him. Look what else he says. It's another familiar verse. Verse 13. He says, and you will seek me, and you'll find me when you search for me with all your heart. 
Then I will be found of you, declares the Lord, and I will turn your captivity and I'll gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've scattered you there, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I took you into exile because you have said the Lord has raised up to us prophets in Babylon. So just going back to verse 13 for a moment, the verse that's quoted and memorized as an assurance that anybody can find God at any time if they search really hard. It's the, you will seek me and you'll find me when you search for me with all your heart. Is in the context of a God who has, to a degree, hidden himself from these people. He's rejected them and he's refusing to hear their prayers. And his promise that they will find him if they search with all their hearts is not meant to be understood as a tribute to their seeking, but rather as a tribute to God's mercy to once again make himself known to people. So brothers and sisters, verse 13 without verse 14 is bad theology. You can't just yank verse 13 out. But verse 13 with verse 14 is glorious truth. You will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. And when you find me, it is not your heart that found me, but it is I that made myself known to you because I've planned a hopeful future for you to know me before the world began. Verse 14 says, then I will be found of you. The reason you will find me is because I will make myself known to you. I will reveal myself to you, which is a mercy, whenever it happens and to whomever it happens. These verses are testimonies to God and to his mercy and grace, not to human beings. And the means that God uses to reveal himself to seeking man is always his word. Specifically here, the preaching of his word, according to verse 15. They will hear God's voice through the prophets that he raises up in their midst. That was his message through Jeremiah to his people in exile. The rest of the letter is his word to the rebels who remained in the land. I commend it to you certainly. You would do good to read it because these were the people who disobeyed God's word for the life that they wanted rather than the one that God wanted for them. It's always a bit weird to me targeting a text for kind of a unique standalone sermon. And it's not my favorite thing to jump 29 chapters into a book and target something in the middle of the chapter. But I trust that this text may be a help to you. But all of us who struggle with trust, who struggle with contentment, who struggle with anxiety, who are prone to distracted days and restless nights, trust that somehow this text might give us a place to run in those moments. It might lead us a little further down the path of taking God at his word. And Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not the life more than food? and The body more than clothing? Are you not of more value than the birds of the air to your heavenly Father? Can you add a single hour to your life by being anxious? The Gentiles seek 
after all these things. And your Father knows that you need them all. So that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Because I know the plans I have for you. Plans of welfare, not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. So Christ Fellowship, Open Door Church, be confident that God's plan for you is for your welfare and not for your destruction if he is indeed your Lord. He's designed his plans for you in Christ before the foundation of the world. And what he does at every moment in life is an expression of his faithfulness to himself and his goodness toward you. So rather than being overcome by anxiety and discontentment and frustration, my message to you this morning is let God's peace, God's rest, and trust in God fill your heart this morning. May it ground you as you leave. Would you join me in prayer? Father, your word is living life. Upon our darkened eyes. It guides us through temptation and it makes the simple wise. Lord, you've shown us Christ this morning. You were merciful toward your people before the foundation of the world sent Christ to redeem his people from their sins. Father, those of us who profess Christ as Lord, find a place of refuge for life right now in our sufferings and trials and hardships and confusions and worries and fears. Jeremiah 29 and verse 11 is a refuge for us. Ground us. Ground us there now. Ground us there by the power of your indwelling spirit. All this we pray in Jesus' name.